Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Oh, that's nice. Hi, I'm Kate Samino with the Humphrey Schools Center for the Study of Politics and Governance. Uh, welcome. We're glad to see you today. It's a nice sunny day. Not any weather to deal with today, right? So this is good um, to have a chance to get together and talk. Um, so I'll introduce today's program in a moment. But first, who, uh, who in the room is an NPR listener? Good. What's going on on NPR right now? The member drive. Uh, and we, we, do not, we do not have a member drive, but... But we do bring you these programs supported in large part by uh, individuals and uh, foundations that support our work. And just like at NPR, every gift matters at every level. And a gift to our center is actually a gift through the University of Minnesota Foundation. So it is a charitable contribution. So if you appreciate these types of programs where you can come together, meet some interesting and smart folks, talk about some issues that are on your mind, I encourage you to um, come talk to me after. My email or our email is on your program that you received today, and I'd be happy to talk with you. Every gift does matter. And if you believe these kinds of programs are important, we invite you to join us. So today's program, we have uh, Professor Julia Azari from Marquette University, and I'm particularly pleased that we uh, are going to be spending some time with her today because I feel like the just watching the Democratic nomination process thus far um, seems like for a long time it was kind of out there like this thing that was sort of far away and all of a sudden in the last couple of weeks it's like oh okay this is really happening this is really happening and so just that kind of uh, we're getting closer to the point where a lot of the gears are going to be turning and shifting, and personally, I'm excited to hear from Professor Azari to learn a little bit more about how this works, kind of systematically, and also in this specific example we have right now of the Democratic primary uh, process. So you have Professor Azari's bio on your program that you have with you. I will tell you that she will speak from the podium for a little bit, and then she'll be joined up here by Professor Catherine Pearson from here at the U of M. We will be taking your questions on written cards that my colleague Mike and I are going to be helping to pass out for you. Um, we do that not to restrict questions, but to get a really good recording that can be rebroadcast on NPR so they can make more money from more member drive. You know, it's like their little cycle they got going. <laughs> so please, um, please write your questions down so we can get as many of those in as we can. I know Catherine will be looking to get some good questions going. Um, and then hopefully this program can also be then rebroadcast uh, for more listeners. So I think that's about it. I am really pleased to welcome Professor Azari here to the Humphrey School and welcome her to the podium today. Thank you so much for that introduction and thank you all for, for coming out. I, I want to start this by saying my view on this is as a scholar of party politics and someone who looks at a lot of archival research has a kind of historical viewpoint. So I'm thinking of this in the long view and I don't really have necessarily a strong critique of anything that's going on in the moment that we're, that we're in, but rather my concerns are about the system itself. And I wanna start with a couple of, of familiar words to describe what's happening today that I've seen. Disarray, chaos, division. And they're not far off, I think, notably from the same kinds of words that were described to, were used to describe the 2016 Republican uh, nomination process. And again, I think that we're talking about something that is systemic. When I talk to people of different, who have different memories and different backgrounds, I think our that really frames how we evaluate the moment. So when I speak to people whose vivid memories are from the 1968 Democratic Convention, there's a real fear about confrontation, about disarray, and even about violence. My own experience is different. I am a few years older than Pete Buttigieg. Um, and, and so my first real vivid memory is the 2000 convention um, I happened to be attending as a college student in Los Angeles um, where my, my parents live, so it was convenient for me to attend this program. I will be the faculty director of this program this summer. Um, and Al Gore was the nominee and it felt, as a young person going into voting for my first presidential election, very scripted. There was very little dissent there was very little discussion of issues like mass incarceration, the drug war, serious foreign policy alternatives that were brought up at these shadow conventions that were held at each national convention a little ways away from the 
from the party, uh, from the main event. When I tell my current students about this idea that there was no real difference between, people thought there was no difference between the two parties, were complaining that everything was a little too packaged, they think, they look at me like I am completely insane. So I think our framework, our framework really matters. Um, and I remember particularly the student apathy I was facing among my peers in that fall of 2000. I could not get my housemates to vote. One of them messaged me this morning to ask me which candidate would help deal with her health care costs. But I think this, the chaos that people who remember 1968 remember and the artificial manufactured consensus that I remember are actually two sides of the same coin, a nomination process and a party system that aren't fully responsive and that have trouble managing internal conflict. And as a result, either overmanage it or don't manage it very well at all. So I want to offer three critiques of what's going on in our, our nomination system. The first one is that it's not a system at all. It's informal, it's poorly institutionalized, and that might make it look democratic because it's so porous, but it actually is, it lacks transparency. That in the years I'm thinking of, in the 90s and the 2000s, that while the party primary process officially played out, Party actors were in the shadows endorsing and converging on a nominee and often selecting that nominee informally before many people had a chance to vote. <coughs> it's also unclear from year to year which parties will be most important, or excuse me, which primaries will be most important. So some years it's Iowa and New Hampshire and then the process is over. Some years, it's Super Tuesday. The states themselves try to jockey around this. They try to move earlier. Sometimes they try to move later. I vote in April. I have no idea if my, if my vote will matter. So having, having a process that's constantly in flux is not very democratic. I also think that there's a lack of clear factions within the party, and I know that sounds counterintuitive. Um, but one of the things that we've seen, if you look at the polls, how people's preferences for candidates are structured, where many people who are prefer Sanders first and then Biden second, um, their preferences kind of cross this moderate left divide. But in the debates, the candidates have, have been, have sort of arranged themselves around this, and I think this has been a very strong media narrative. I think in the absence of a more clear and institutionalized process, it's very easy for media and political elites to structure a conflict and tell people this is what the primary is about in a way that may or may not map onto the reality of how people experience the issues. The second problem is that it's unrepresentative. And here I think the, the main challenge is the outsized influence of Iowa and New Hampshire, which are both over 90% white. This is a problem for Democrats, it's a problem for Republicans. These are states that do not look like the nation. Um, but also, I think that there is something that happened very specifically in, in the 2020 race that, that deserves attention. And that is that if you ask Democratic voters what they value, they value having a nominee of color. That's not to say there aren't white candidates who are strong candidates, but that this, this is something that at least deserves to be part of the process. But if you noticed, if you watched the most recent debate, there really aren't any more available candidates of color on that stage. Um, and some of this, I think, stems from the lack of coordination and lack of a clear institutional process. That if, if this is something that's important to voters, that there's no way for people to express that preference as a group. It's hard for you to know what your neighbor, much less a, a person of your same party affiliation across the country, might be thinking. And as a result, I think this really damaged the several candidates of color who were in the race initially. Finally, and then I'll, I'll stop talking and, uh, and take some, some questions, is I think that the, the process is too candidate-centered. One result of this is that it makes it too much like a general election. There's a huge emphasis on winning. And this is really not about who wins, it's about choosing a nominee to go on to a general election that someone will win. And so the nomination process should ideally, and this is true I think for either party, not be about my candidate beat your candidate, it is about how do people who affiliate with this party all come together to have some level of representation, develop a party agenda that accommodates multiple perspectives. I also worry that the emphasis on the outsider status, something that many of the candidates have tried to mobilize with varying degrees of success, becomes unsustainable. And if once you become the nominee, are you still an outsider? At that point, you're the party. Once you become the president, at that point, you're the government. 
and you have to have something else to say for yourself other than that you're an outsider. Finally, the candidate-centered nature of the, of the process really gives a huge advantage to people who already have name recognition. So it seems to me that we spend a year, it feels like a year to me, actually it feels like a century to me, um, trying to p select a nominee in a way that ultimately there's a lot of advantage given to the candidates that are already national figures and that puts the candidates who aren't at a, at a substantial disadvantage. And I looked at some, some polling that um, and compared favorability of the, at the time the top four, so it was um, Buttigieg and uh, Warren and then Biden and Sanders. Klobuchar didn't get as much attention in this poll, which is really unfortunate. Um, the people who took this poll didn't, hadn't anticipated her. Um, the success that she's had, but if you look at those four, there's a marked difference. And the difference is that people are warmer to Biden and Sanders, two candidates who are quite different in a lot of ways, um, and much cooler to Warren and Buttigieg, simply because they don't seem to know who they are. If you're not like me and you're not a political junkie and you don't spend your time, you don't come to political events in the middle of the day, you know, we are, we are one group of people. There's lots of other valid people out in the world. They may not know who these candidates are. And that, so that gives a really pronounced advantage to candidates who are already famous. So those are my concerns about the process. And again, I think these transcend a specific year, a specific candidate, even a specific party. Um, there, I think, are ways we could organize the process that would give more voice to different constituencies and help parties come together around nominees and have meaningful and substantive conversations about issues. So with that, I will turn it over. I guess I proceed to the, to the chairs. Catherine will join me. We'll take your questions. I thank you all for your attention. I'm going to take my two water bottles. Great. Professor Azari, thank you so much. And please, audience members, be filling out your note cards so I can eventually turn to your questions um, instead of asking my own. But I, I want to start by picking up on a point that many political scientists uh, actually quote Professor Azari in making. And that is that partisans today are very strong. So people tend to feel their partisan identification intensely, but party organizations are really quite weak. So uh, Professor Azari is often quoted as saying, in America we have strong partisans and weak parties. And so if you could say a little bit more about the weaknesses of party organizations. I think that a lot of voters out there assume uh, or think, because some candidates have made them, have suggested this, that the DNC is all powerful or the RNC is all powerful. So if you could be a little more specific about what powers the party organizations have and what powers they don't have. Yeah, so I think the main, the main power that the party organizations, the national committees, which are one of several organizations that make up the Republican or Democratic Party, their main powers at this point is that they do structure certain aspects of the nomination process. So they make the rules about what the convention, what the decision making will be at the convention. They make more recent, a more recent development is that they work in collaboration with media outlets to make the rules about who gets to participate in a debate. This is, again, this is actually pretty recent. Um, and they offer some, they put some parameters and some guidelines on parties, Democrats more than the Republicans, on state parties about how they conduct their primary or caucus. But as you, as you probably know, there's a lot of variation from state to state in terms of when the primary is, what that process looks like, is it a caucus, it, who can vote in it, is it open, is it open just to independence, is it, is it closed? Um, so the, the national parties are actually, they have some important agenda setting and organizational power, but actually, particularly compared to other advanced democracies, our national parties are quite, are quite weak. Um, what, who is powerful and who has exerted power, as I said in my, my remarks earlier, and I really want to emphasize this, is this informal process by which these people, by which elected officials for the most part, who may or may not be part of the national organization, can coordinate and try to influence the nomination process. So we have a lot of informal influence going on behind the scenes, and I think that deserves a lot more scrutiny than, this, than the focus of the DNC has been receiving. 
So certainly in 2016, there were questions about why Republicans uh, could not mm -hmm. stop President Trump. There are in some <coughs> corners questions percolating about, you know, could the DNC <coughs> stop Senator Sanders? Um, but, but I want to sort of ask you about some different scenarios. So in order to win on the first ballot um, at the convention, the, the Democrats' convention this summer, a candidate would need 1,991 delegates, delegates that are obtained through primaries and caucuses. And as you mentioned, sort of since the po in the post-McGovern-Fraser era, so from 1972 to the present, present, we have not had a brokered or a contested convention. We've essentially known, well, we have known who each candidate's nominee will be going into the convention, so they're just these scripted right. affairs that you've discussed. But it does seem like there is the real possibility for a convention in which we have a candidate or candidates with a lot of delegates or plurality of delegates, but not a majority. In other words, not enough delegates to win on the first vote. Um, what do you think could happen, or can you say a little bit more about uh, a contested convention and what that might look like? Well, I'm cleaning out my guest room in Milwaukee. Uh, <laughs> in the event that, that that happens, I think there'll be a lot of attention to the, what's going on. Um, I think this is one of the positive aspects of this primary, by the way, is that it's, it's attracting a lot of attention. It's very vibrant and public. Um, so we don't know. The rules don't specify what happens if no one goes into the into the convention with a majority of the delegates. This used to be standard. It used to be that, and it would often look like some contests that might seem familiar, where two two big popular politicians went in, and it turned out they didn't agree on major issues, and their supporters couldn't stand each other. And then, typically, what would happen like back in the early 20th or the 19th century is that party leaders would actually pick a third person who was at least minimally acceptable to both of those two. So you'd have this sort of clash of the titans, and then they both they wouldn't get the nomination. Um, it also used to be that used to be more common among Democrats because they used to require two thirds rather than a simple majority. Um, now it they require a simple majority. If we go into the convention and one candidate has 35% of the vote, or excuse me, the delegates, or um, you know, 30% of the delegates, 40%, it is not clear what will happen. And there, I think, are a there's a reasonable case to be made that that candidate has the most votes, and there is a reasonable ca be case to be made that most people voted for someone else, depending on what that vote total looks like, which I also don't know. Um, so that is very unclear, and I think that that, if that candidate who has that 35 or 40 percent is Bernie Sanders, I think this will be a test of whether the, the party will, will support him um, or whether they'll choose someone else. I just, I don't really know. And where I live in Milwaukee, a lot of, a lot of the sorts of people who are local officials who attend the DNC as, as delegates or superdelegates are in favor of Bernie Sanders because of their values and the constituents they represent. So I think the party is actually more mixed than the narrative would suggest. So, so I guess stay tuned, uh, yeah, and we'll see we'll see what happens. A short answer um, <laughs> in Milwaukee. And <clears throat> are we at a point now that we've been having primaries and caucuses for you know from 1972 onward mm -hmm. that it would be too late to go back to the smoke-filled rooms where party leaders just mm -hmm. decide on the nominees, and and not every state has a primary or a caucus. I would say smoke-filled rooms. They probably wouldn't have smoke in right. them anymore. But yeah, I, I hope not. Um, I think that. I think that this is part of a larger crisis in representative democracy and in a sort of populist wave that has emerged in the US and in other democracies where people really don't trust other people to represent them. And on the one hand, I think that that's, that is a, a, there's a reason for that. And on the other hand, that is a pretty profound crisis because ultimately in a democracy, you do have to kind of delegate your preferences to someone else. That's what happens when you elect someone to Congress, to the state house, to the city council. Um, and to get people to think that way about political parties is, is really challenging. So I don't, I don't really know. It, this, to me, it seems like the party has moved in the other direction and people really want the primary to be a general. I think the strength of partisanship contributes to that because many people don't perceive the general election to be a meaningful choice for them. If you know that you're going to vote Democratic, you know you're gonna vote Republican, 
then you want to have a choice in the primary, and the primary kind of serves that function. And I think that's, that is an unfortunate state of affairs because it pulls us into this never-ending campaign, and it might be nice for the government to govern sometimes. Um, so, you know, I see, this as, I see this as a very serious problem that's not getting better. Let's talk a little bit about reforming uh, the primary and caucus system. Um, mm -hmm. Minnesota, uh, up until this cycle, used to caucus, um, but we have moved and are participating on Super Tuesday as a presidential primary state. There will still be caucuses for other levels of office. Um, what are some of the advantages of primaries versus caucuses, and why do you think we've seen uh, so many states, mm -hmm. actually, since 2016, move from caucuses to primaries? So I think that there are, there are things that could be useful about a caucus. I think that there it is there's something nice about having politics be more participatory and have people show up, see their neighbors. I know when I've never lived in a caucus state, so I have no experience with this personally, but I've talked to people who have caucused in Iowa. It seems like everyone I know in Iowa has met every presidential candidate and has been to these caucuses. Um, that you have to stand up in front of your neighbors and for some people that feels a little uncomfortable. I get that. I also see like the more we make politics something that people are more engaged in, that's great. But it's very challenging for people to get there. And as we see in Iowa, it's very challenging to to come up with results. And it's not obvious that people are having meaningful discussions, right? I mean, it's great to go all be in the room together, but it's not clear that people are sitting down and like really hashing out their views on healthcare in that context. Um, so I think caucuses are on the way out. I would, I would not be surprised if the Iowa caucus still exists in four years, but I would be more surprised if it still exists in 10 or 15. Um, and this has not been great publicity for it. And do you think <clears throat> that it will be or should be first? So what are some advantages of, <coughs> of reform of the timetable? What about yeah. a same day national yeah. primary or what about regional primaries? What, how might that affect the process? I think any, anything where the process is actually predictable would be better and anything where a, a wider array of voters have input would be better. I worry with those two that that pushes us further down the line of having two general elections. And if, if that's the case, we might as well just have a runoff election where we have a multi-candidate election and then the winners of that election go on to a next round. They have that in France. You can observe it in, in, in practice. It has had some pretty serious disadvantages over the last 20 years or so, I think. But um, that's, you know, that's an option. The, I, the more I think about it and the more I've studied this, I find, no offense to Iowa, as wonderful people living in Iowa, but that really strikes me as a problem. Um, there's a really entertaining book I recommend by, it's by Amy Chozik, and it's called Chasing Hillary, and it's just, it's just very entertaining. I listened to it on an audio book where she talks about covering Hillary Clinton for, for years. Um, but one of the things that really jumped out at me is they're in Iowa all the time. I live on, as, as you do, in a state that borders Iowa, but is more urban and more diverse. And I, I felt, you know, I have never seen a presidential candidate at a diner. They cut, once the general starts, this is another matter, but, but in the primaries, we're not a target state. I haven't met all the candidates in my local wherever. And I live in a city with, with you know, substantial populations of people from all over the world and people of different identities. And that strikes me as a real, and I imagine people who live in LA or New York are even more frustrated, right? So this is a real, real problem. I think we gotta have, more, more voices in the process. Is there an argument to be made uh, uh, for uh, sort of re regional primaries that rotate every four years? So and this is definitely an argument that's, um, that's been made and I don't, I don't really have a clear sense of what that would look like. I mean, that might be, that might be great. That might be even less organized than the current process. I don't know. Sorry, now I'm reading and asking oh, questions man. at the same time. Electability. Electability is a big issue. So <clears throat> we saw Republicans mm -hmm. grapple with this in 2016. We're seeing Democrats grapple with this in 2020. What does it actually mean, mm -hmm. um, and how is that affecting the process? This is the easiest way, I think, to clear a room of political scientists is to ask about electability. Um, I have one perspective that I want to make, I want to clarify is based on years of reading and thinking about this and also having done a lot of research on how elections are interpreted, but it's not the only viewpoint that, um, that, that people have in my professional community. 
I don't think candidates matter as much as campaigns and political circumstances. It seems to me that one of the lessons of 2016 is that people will vote for their party and they don't really have a fine-tuned sense of the differences across different candidates. Um, to the extent that we're reaching swing voters or trying to mobilize people, um, I think the campaign matters more than the candidate. And you can package different candidates in different ways, and every candidate is going to have some, some advantages and some liabilities. So I, I'm, I am pretty far on the end of electability is not a thing, or at least it's not a, it's not a quality, it's not a fixed characteristic that candidates have. Thank you. We have several questions um, about ranked choice voting, mm -hmm. which is something that many cities in, in <clears throat> Minnesota have. Um, how mm. would this work for the presidential nominating system, um, specifically ranked yeah. choice voting, um, and would that make sense? Also thinking mm -hmm. about uh, Maine going to mm -hmm. ranked choice voting in this year's primary. Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think the jury is sort of out on, on what the impact and unintended consequences of ranked choice voting would be. I think at this point, any reform to the primary system that will allow people to register more nuance in their preferences would be useful. Um, I think it would give us a lot of information about how people structure their thoughts. Because as I said earlier, I think, I think people who do this for a living, including people in the media, uh, but politicians, analysts, think about politics ideologically. And I don't know that that's, we have a lot of evidence that that's how people who don't do this for a living think about it. Um, and that it would be useful to have more information about how that works. Um, I don't know, in terms of the, one of my concerns about ranked choice voting is that it's very complicated and it, I know there were some concerns, I was in Maine right after the 2018 mid, um, midterm elections and I know they had one situation where someone was chosen through ranked choice and it looked very complex and all of a sudden the person who has the most first choice votes isn't actually winning. I worry that this will also turn off people who, who pay attention to politics sporadically. Uh, but I don't have enough evidence to make a strong claim. What about, so what about at the convention specifically? So say right. in the scenario we discussed earlier, <coughs> um, Democrats in right. the summer of 2020 go right. in with a plurality candidate right. but not a candidate who has that majority yeah. of delegates necessary. Could ranked choice voting among the candidates who mm -hmm. are still left help with this problem? I mean, it would certainly clarify what's supposed to happen. I don't know if it would help the legitimacy problem. It seems to me that every time parties try to do something to address the last legitimacy problem, it doesn't actually fix, it doesn't fix whatever it is that's bothering some segment of the electorate about institutions. No one has been able to fix that. Right, right. So in other words, if the plurality candidate, you know, who comes in with the most mm -hmm. delegates and then doesn't ultimately get the nomination through ranked choice voting, there's those, some of those legitima legitimacy issues mm -hmm. would pers persist, but maybe, maybe to a lesser extent than if it was in a smoke-filled room with no smoke. Um, yeah, maybe. And yeah, I mean, I think it would also depend a lot on, on how it was framed in, in media narratives. Right. Um, okay, there's still a lot going on here. Um, we have heard what you don't like about the presidential nominating process. Uh, what kind of process would you propose um, specifically <coughs> in response? So I have, a couple, I have a couple of ideas. The people have talked about regional primaries, and that's a sort of like easy build on to the current system. Um, I'm, a, I'm an advocate of the preference primary, so I think there should be an accompanying process where affiliates of a party should be able to register their, their issue preferences in a way that would kind of mirror what you might see in a public opinion poll but where the, where the party would ask some questions. What are, your, what are your key issues? Which of several policy alternatives do you approve? What, how has the party let you down and disappointed you? On what issues do you disagree with us? And that would, be, would not bind delegates to, to adopting proposals that strictly matched what, what voters said, but it would get us out of this moment where we're all doing so much guesswork. What, what does everybody else think? Where does everybody else stand on? on the issues and also to get a kind of sense of how people's stances on issues or how their views on the world translate into their preferences for candidates. Um, I think that that's really idiosyncratic and I was, I was telling Catherine over lunch, I see this in the people that I spend time with who are mostly professional so social scientists but have very different ideas about how their values and beliefs translate into the current crop of candidates. 
And that way, it would just be useful to have that information and have it be public. And so the party is not formally bound to do any particular thing with it, but everybody knows what your what your constituents said, and it can inform not just the not just the party, not the just the nominee, but also the platform. Something no one pays attention to because it's basically a completely elite process. Picking up on sort of what you said about changes after one nominating process uh, inform the next. Could you talk a little bit about the rise and purported fall of superdelegates? Sort of why did they arise and what's different about superdelegates right. in 2020 <coughs> and what the impact, uh, what the impact right. will be if superdelegates do have a say ultimately in 2020? Yeah, so, so superdelegates emerged in the 1980s as a response to the McGovern-Fraser reforms in a sense that the primaries had become too, too unwieldy, had given too much power to the, to the rank and file voters, um, and that that had ideological and electoral implications. So they were adopted at a very specific moment in time when the Democratic Party was trying to move to the center in order to, to stop losing presidential elections. Um, that, that is in sort of the similar time frame as the adoption of Super Tuesday to have a grouped um, set of southern primaries, also to give the moderate wing of the Democratic Party more voice. At this point, the electorate is the electorate has shifted. I think the electoral terrain has shifted. The center, the sort of center of gravity in the Democratic Party has shifted, and so those logics are not don't obviously apply. Um, there was a lot of talk about superdelegates in 2016 because many of the superdelegates. So these are people who are elected officials. Um, at the state and local level, for the most part, or elected or officials within the party who are not bound by the votes of their constituents but can go to the convention and vote for who they want. Um, since we haven't had a nomination actually decided in the convention, they haven't really mattered. No one really agrees on whether the sort of looming threat of superdelegates has shaped other people's behavior. Um, but there was an assumption, there was a reality that they, they largely supported Hillary Clinton, I think, assuming that she would be the inevitable nominee and not wanting to get on the bad side of the nominee and potentially eventually the president. Um, in 2020, if they cannot vote on the first ballot. If it goes to a second ballot, they can vote. But I think that my sense is that the, the superdelegates will not be a block. They will not be a monolith. Um, and that there will probably, in the event that there's no majority, there'll be more than one candidate, more than two candidates in play. Um, so I don't know how they'll coordinate among themselves in Milwaukee, um, but I think that people will be surprised at the, at the variety of opinion among, among superdelegates. However, that, the word has become really toxic. Thank you. And Republicans don't have superdelegates, just to follow up, correct? Yeah. Um, do you think that if Trump had lost the general election in 2016, mm -hmm. that Republicans would have thought about superdelegates um, mm -hmm. in the, advocating <laughs> that the par party leaders should have more say? Yeah, so this is a really great question and something I've actually not given as enough thought to as I should have, given, given how inevitable that outcome seemed a few years ago. Of what, what would the Republican Party have done in the wake of a Trump loss? Um, and it's possible that they would have made their process more hierarchical and more institutional. It's also possible that the, the same problems that kept them from coordinating around Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush or whoever would have kept them from, um, from meaningfully reforming their process. One thing I don't have a very clear sense of is, is the degree to which um, Republican voters have the same kind of distrust of the party organization that they they affiliate with as Democratic voters do. I suspect it's not as different as as we might think. Um, it maybe comes from different reasons, but some evidence we have around that comes from the the rhetoric and discourse around the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus. There was real frustration about the party establishment not being responsive to them. Trump, as I, I noted this when I was giving an academic talk this morning some very patient people in the political science department, that um, Trump didn't talk about the party establishment that much when he was running. He talked about the media and other kinds of elites. But um, in, the, you know, in a way that's kind of different from what Bernie Sanders does, 
So I don't really know, like that might give more room for Republicans to have made a more hierarchical process and adopted superdelegates. Alternately, it might have just unleashed a lot of populist anger and it might have been, you know, we lost because we didn't capture the, you know, because it was too institutionalized in some way. It was too elite in some way. So I don't know. Thank you. There are some questions that touch on both debates and debate rules and also <laughs> giving unknown candidates more of a voice. Um, could you speak to your reaction about mm -hmm. Democrats' debate rules mm -hmm. in the 2020 process, and are they too inclusive, not inclusive, right. uh, or right. are they exclusive? You know, should more candidates have been allowed? Should they have been smaller? Yeah, so this, I think the problem around debates actually speaks to the, this trade-off and tension in the process, which is we don't really know. How, like, how inclusive is too inclusive? That starts to look really chaotic and disorganized versus if, it's, if you try to narrow it down, then it's exclusive. Um, ideally, to me, I think it would make sense to start introducing slightly higher thresholds earlier on. Um, because the, the first couple rounds of the Democratic debates, I think, were not inviting to, to voters. They were inclusive to candidates, but like, I'm not interested in what's inclusive to people with a lot of money or people who already hold positions of power. I'm interested in what kind of process will engage people like my friends who aren't obsessed with politics. And a two-night, 10-person debate is, like I was exhausted and I do this for a living. Um, but there's, not, like, there's just not a clear answer to what that, what that threshold should look like. Um, you're gonna inevitably have to cut somebody off and you're gonna inevitably annoy someone, no question. And I do think the debates have offered a couple candidates in particular, Amy Klobuchar is one and Pete Buttigieg is another, an opportunity to, to show themselves to the national electorate. And they've been pretty advantageous. Um, and I guess, finally I would say, I think that the problem, the problem with the, uh, the focus on debates and having a million debates and having a lot of people in them is that they help you, they create a kind of test for do you have it or do you not have it? And that's useful, but they don't really help when you have a bunch of candidates that are all pretty plausible, they're qualified, they're pretty good on stage, then they're just going after each other. And in a way that I think is not productive. And you saw candidates who are quite qualified, Biden, Harris, um, kind of fall apart in debates in ways that may not be reflective of their larger political personalities. I have a shifting gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. I have a question uh, that asks you to please comment about how well the system copes with or accommodates disruptors like Sanders, mm -hmm. Warren, Trump, Nader, <coughs> Perot, I would add Bloomberg to that mm -hmm. list as well. Um, and what happens when they fall short? Did mm -hmm. Nader, for example, uh, help Bush to win the presidency? And did Sanders in 2016 in a different way help mm -hmm. Trump win? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't, I don't really know the answer to either of those questions. I mean, I think that in practice, our system isn't very, those are two very different questions. So in practice, our system is not very well set up to accommodate more than two presidential candidates. And when it's very close in a given state, a third party candidate can, can change the vote. And there's, you know, there, I think there's arguments by people who have run the numbers that Nader might have made a difference for Al Gore in 2000. And there's an assumption that the people who voted for Ralph Nader would have preferred Gore over Bush. It seems to me like on the one hand a safe assumption, but on the other hand not an assumption that we should make a lot of high impact decisions on the basis of. Um, as far as Sanders, I, I don't really think Sanders helped elect Trump. Um, I do think that he spoke to populist frustrations on the left that might have some commonalities with populist frustrations on the right, but again, our system is not set up for us to understand that. So that, I guess, is, is, this is a real concern for me. I wrote a book chapter a while ago, which is buried in a very expensive and arcane book um, that I'm not getting any royalties from, but um, I just wrote a chapter. But my chapter is on how parties are inherently conservative institutions and they're risk averse. And this is especially the case um, when it comes to real change on racial equality and economic inequality. And I think there are people. I think there are people in both parties who are concerned about those things in different different ways. Um, freshest on the brain are some of the fights among Democrats. So yeah, I mean, I think that that's. I think that they're really not set up to deal with to deal with that. On the other hand, disruption is not a sustainable way to do representative politics. 
So it's a, I think it's a very deep tension. It's a, it's a very difficult problem to resolve. But yeah, I think parties are sort of intrinsically risk averse and conservative. Is Sanders an outsider? Um, this is a great question. So I think I'm writing my next book about outsiders, so I will tell you in 10 years. Um, the, I think Sanders is someone who is, who is taking a, the logical progression of about 50 years of people talking about outsider politics to the next level, um, where his message is, is heavily about being an outsider, it's heavily about um, about challenging the establishment, but actually he's been in Congress for you know, most of my life, um, more than longer than my students have been alive, and um, he's he's caucused with the Democrats. I think that's meaningful. Um, so no, actually I don't think he's an outsider, but I think he's someone who's making very profound outsider appeals and whose candidacy is staked on that. I think that puts him in a, in a challenging position in the event that he wins the nomination in the presidency, both of which are events I think are are quite possible. Um, but I think it's, it's really challenging for someone who's a true outsider to get into that, into that position. And I think Sanders is more of an insider than just based on the observable facts than we might be led to believe. I want to turn now to, uh, Wisconsin, your, your home state, um, and 2016. So the question, uh, I have in front of me mm -hmm. asks about the influence oh. of Russia on Wisconsin mm -hmm. specifically in 2016. Um, but if you could both address that, but also mm -hmm. Wisconsin results more broadly mm -hmm. in 2016, and right. then reflect, uh, on just how competitive the 2020 <coughs> presidential elections are shaping up to be, sort of mm -hmm. even though we don't yet know who the Democratic candidate is. Yeah, that's a good question. So I am I have to admit I'm I'm really subject to what to what experts on, you know, electronic misinformation, on, you know, the detail, the quantitative details of voting patterns, what these folks say about Russia. And there's um <coughs> excuse me. There's a compelling book by um, a scholar named Kathleen Hall Jamison, where she makes the case that Russia was really critical. There are other people who are really skeptical of that. So I just don't know. I'm not sure we ever will know. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. But we know it was an extremely close election <coughs> in yes. Wisconsin, and then the 2018 gubernatorial race uh, in Wisconsin, in which the Democrat won, right. was also very close. Very close. Um, and so, uh, does that lead you to predict that 2020 in Wisconsin and other upper Midwestern states will also be close? I think it's quite likely. Yeah, and it seems like so. What I think happens in Wisconsin is <coughs> sorry. I've been fighting off this cold for weeks. Um, Political scientists have this concept called sorting, S-O-R-T, uh, sorting, um, where liberals became Democrats and conservatives became Republicans over like, the last 50 years or so. And I think this happened very slowly in certain parts of Wisconsin. <coughs> um, the part is the, particularly the sort of northwestern part of the state. Um, where you had you had Dave Obie, who was sort of a moderate Democrat who represented that district for a long time. And I think because of that, because of relative geographical isolation, that that part of the state remained Democratic much longer than it logically should have, given the ideology of people who live there. And I think we saw some of that manifest in 2016 when you had a campaign that resonated with a variety of concerns of voters who live there. Um, but I also think, again, I live in southern Wisconsin. I live right in the city of Milwaukee. It is a majority minority city with substantial immigrant populations with two large universities. So you got a lot going on. Um, and it, fully 10% of the state's population lives within the city of Milwaukee. So I think, I think I'm in for a lot of ads in the fall. Um, I also think that it's, it's notable, you know, Bernie Sanders did very well in the, in the 2016 primary. Um, it was not Trump country in the Republican primary. So I think that you have, you have a voting population that has a, a wide array of different kinds of preferences within parties as well. Um, so I just don't know. I think it'll be very close. I think there's a variety of factors that could be the deciding factor and no one knows which one it will be. In 2016, nine out of 10 Democrats voted for Clinton <clears throat> and nine out of 10 Republicans voted for Trump. Do we have any reason to expect, depending on <clears throat> the nominee that that could be different in 2020. <coughs> Sorry. No. Um, we don't. What, what's changing underneath that 
I think there's some evidence that there's who identifies as a Republican is, has changed under Trump. And one of the reasons that Trump, and this is a theory, there are counter theories, um, but one of the arguments is that one reason that Trump maintains such high support among Republicans is because people who don't like Trump have stopped identifying as Republicans in surveys. Um, I would also suggest that most people will come home. This is my go this is my guiding assumption in the election, and it applies to virtually every possible candidate I can think of. Most people will come home. By October, most people will be reminded why they affiliate with the party <coughs> they do, and that's what they'll do. <coughs> Sorry. Um, thank you. So I want to return to some questions about candidates of color uh, in the 2020 Democratic nominating contest specifically. Um, there were strong candidates of color going in, um, but in some cases before the first caucus ballot was cast in Iowa, um, people had dropped out. Mm -hmm. Senator Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, uh, mm -hmm. Castro, mm -hmm. uh, former secretary, Andrew Yang. So <coughs> what happened and what could Democrats mm -hmm. and Republicans, but Democrats mm -hmm. specifically mm -hmm. in this contest, do differently um, to ensure that doesn't happen? So that's a great question and I'm not really sure what the what the magic bullet would be for that. I think on the one hand, it would make sense to coordinate a, around one, one candidate. I also think that that has some serious drawbacks, right? That person then becomes the candidate of color. They might want to be different things. Um, also, the three people you just mentioned have different backgrounds and different preferences and different ideologies um, and represent different kinds of constituencies. So that, you know, that's a tricky one. Um, I think partly the outsized influence of New Hampshire and Iowa are, are driving some of that. I also think people's sense of electability is driving that, and I think that, that many of those concerns are misplaced. Um, we have pretty strong evidence that when, the, when there's a diverse ticket, that ticket tends to do well in the popular vote. Um, it's not always true in the Electoral College. So, you know, I think <coughs> some of it is just deciding it's a priority and, and both putting that in the, the primary process, but also um, not having this, this electability fear. But yeah, it's not a, I mean, it's, there's not a magic bullet for that, and I think it's a real, it's a real concern, how we ended up with, a, with an all-white Democratic primary field when the country and the party are so diverse. It is fundraising and how fundraising occurs before uh, the nominating contest part of the issue and part mm -hmm. of the answer. That's one of that's definitely one of the arguments is that the there are some real network effects that affect how um, candidates of color are able to fundraise. There's arguments for women candidates also. Um, that probably is part of the solution, but it's not totally obvious what how to solve campaign finance given the given the constitutional impediments. Um, small, I mean, the Democrats have meaningfully moved the fundraising model by moving to a small donor model. That has been a change. The Bernie Sanders, among other people, have, have embraced, and I think it has sort of shifted the process. Has it shifted the process in a way that's clearly beneficial to candidates of color? I mean, I think obviously 2020 suggests the jury's still out on that. Turning now to the question of gender specifically, mm -hmm. how do you think gender has affected both Senator Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar's mm -hmm. um, campaigns and chances more specifically? So I think that it's, I think there's, there, and there's some research about this that, you know, this is part of the story in 2016, whether, whether it's true or not. The perception that, that Hillary Clinton's gender was a liability. And specifically, I think that also has to do with Trump. You hear people say, there's a woman can't beat Trump. Um, I'm not actually sure what the underlying mechanism is behind that statement. Um, I don't think, I think there's almost no truth to any statement that's that categorical, but I do think it's affected both Warren and, and Klobuchar. I think it's had some advantages. I think both of them have been very compelling in the way that they've spoken about their gender-specific experiences. Um, but I also think that it pro there probably are those kinds of lingering doubts and there's just not a lot of 
there's just not a lot of candidates um, for president who have been been women. It's not, and that's not just that it's only been Hillary Clinton at the top of the ticket, but that we've seen very few candidates contend, um, and you know maybe come in come in second. There just haven't been very many women who've thrown their hat in the wing at, hat in the ring at all. Right, but then the, right, but then the electability question comes into play. Well, we'll yeah, <clears throat> thinking to sort of political science evidence and historical evidence, and then your projections about mm -hmm. what might happen in 2020, mm -hmm. does a long, bruising, potentially bruising nominating mm -hmm. contest and a potentially bruising convention mm -hmm. sort of enhance the Democratic candidate's chance in November, or does it make it harder to win? So this is a, this is a really great question, and the, the, the research is all over the place, in part because there's not that many examples. Um, there are some studies of like that look at specific places in 2008 to kind of figure out was it was did competition help Obama or hurt him? And some of those studies say it helped. Um, you know, it kind of gets people thinking about the the election. It gets that candidate ready to fend off critiques. Um, on the other hand, we all can think of divisive campaigns that were that were damaging that gave ammunition to the to the other party. Um, my sense tends to be that this is a point where only people who are really engaged are paying attention. So if you can avoid turning off a substantial portion of those people, then probably everyone else is going to tune in in October. Um, so that's, you know, I think that's on balance. It probably doesn't matter that much. Okay. Whether or not it's over <coughs> in March, as it sometimes is, or long and bruising. And a related question. So incumbent presidents, mm -hmm. of course, get to skip this. Mm -hmm. Does that help or hurt? And are incumbent presidents generally advantaged running for re-election? This is another one where, I'm sorry, now I'm making people in the audience cough. This is a disaster. Um, the, so again, this is a tough one because there's so few cases to look at. There, is, there are some arguments that there's a, an incumbency advantage for presidents, and there's certainly, this goes back to this, um, the example that I can think of is, is Nixon in 1972, where he kind of makes a case of looking very presidential, while, um, while uh, McGovern is you know, forced to be in this complicated campaign. I have mixed feelings about this specific instance and how that's going to work. In particular, because I don't see Trump persuading Democrats all of a sudden in the summer of 2020 that he's presidential. Um, he might, I mean, that may or may not be fair, but I just don't think that that's happening, right? Um, the, the, the thing I think that advantages Trump is a relative tranquility of, of the situation that we're in, in the sense that the kinds of measures of the economy that, that scholars tend to look at to predict the election are good. That doesn't mean everybody's happy with the status quo, far from it. So to the extent that people can, that, that segment of the electorate that can be mobilized, that doesn't normally vote, or that swings in their vote, if those folks are convinced that the status quo is worse than the alternative, they'll probably vote for the Democrat. If they're, if they're convinced that the status quo is okay and they're going, to, they're going to sit it out or they're going to vote for the incumbent, that's where incumbency advantage comes in. And I think it's just, it's very hard to get a read on how people are feeling those conditions right now. Um. Thank you. I have a couple of questions on going back to Minnesota. Um, awesome. So Minnesota, again, is on Super Tuesday. It's changed to a presidential primary, yeah. and people will go to the polls and ask for uh, a party ballot. They will mm -hmm. have to choose a party. And in doing so, the leaders of party organizations in Minnesota will have all the names mm -hmm. of people who chose different parties' ballots. Um, is this, how might this affect turnout? How does this differ from other states? Um, mm -hmm. There's some discussion about, you know, could the state legislature change the law so that these names are not given over mm -hmm. to party leaders, um, but it does not look like that will happen before Super Tuesday. If you could just sort of comment on this. Yeah, so I think this is, I think this is the most I've heard about Minnesota since I've been here today, and, and this is really, um, illustrates the kinds of reservations that people have about parties, that there are concerns about having, having one's name turned over to the party. You know, this is the kind of capacity that party leaders try to build up, and it, you know, it's really a problem if people don't feel like they're comfortable with how their information is going to be used. Um, 
How is this different from other states? Complicating the, this, it's yeah. not just the party that you whose ballot you take. <clears throat> the other party or parties get that information as well. Okay, so it becomes state. Interesting. Party, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the speaking speaking very practically, having been in contact with a number of political consultants throughout my career, having had students that have gone into this this field. Um, I don't know. The other party will probably just use that to not mobilize people. Um, I don't know that they're going to do anything terrible or nefarious with it. A big concern with consultants is often, or with the like campaign firms, is we're going to mobilize our opponents. We're going to we're going to try to turn out votes in this neighborhood because we know that there's 30 Democrats, there's 30 Republicans on this block. We want to get all of them to the polls. Well, it turns out, in so doing, you turned out all of the other people in the party, and so they're just trying to use their resources efficiently. I certainly don't want to suggest that we want to just trust folks um, with our information, but just that is my understanding is this mostly, they won't do anything with it at all. Um, the people in the party you did vote for, you know, will contact you forever trying to turn you out. Um, the, <clears throat> it will be interesting to see how Minnesota looks different with a primary rather than a caucus. This is one of the more open questions about what kinds of candidates are advantaged in different institutions. And then here's uh, a candidate we have not really discussed, and that is uh, Mike Bloomberg. So yeah. what impact will his candidacy ultimately have? Does it matter that he's not really competing until, until Super Tuesday? Right. Um, if you could say a little bit about his late entrance into the race. Yeah, I mean, I think... And Bloom advise. And what? <laughs> and advise. And advise. These are the only ads I've seen. Um, because our, our presidential primary is in April in, in Wisconsin, and he has a big office right in downtown Wisconsin. You can't avoid it, and it's in a space that used to be a smooth jazz bar, um, which is a never-ending amusement to me. Um, but um, so I think that there was a moment where it looked like Bloomberg was really playing a strategy a couple of strategies, either to be a Biden alternative or to be uh, the sort of brokered convention alternative. And I think that's also probably why he's setting up shop in Milwaukee. He had this surprising round of success getting endorsements from elected local black officials. But I think that that turned into a pretty negative press narrative. I think in the debate, he just didn't have the things that people who do well in debates have. Uh, I'm trying to be very diplomatic here, but I, I don't think the debate is his medium. Um, and you have different, like a whole range of different candidates who, are, who have other kinds of debate skills. Um, I think, you know, Bernie Sanders is born for the debate medium. I think Buttigieg has been able to use it effectively. I think Klobuchar has been able to use it effectively sometimes. Um, but, but Bloomberg didn't have that. I think if he, were the, if he were like Trump or like Sanders and gave really compelling rallies, he would be a much more competitive candidate, but he's not. Um, that being said, Super Tuesday is a lot of delegates, and I, I don't know. Right, I don't know. The assumption in the media, um, <coughs> I, and I guess my own assumption, is that after Super Tuesday, we will see some more candidates drop out. Mm -hmm. But in an era where we know we might have a contested convention um, and social media is less expensive, is that a fair assumption? I mean, is there mm -hmm. a scenario where only one or two or none of the remaining candidates actually drop out? I think there is, yeah. And I mean, and this is, we had the first writing on the wall about this after Iowa, and I, I told my students the next day what we see was anti-winnowing. Right, we went into Iowa with four top candidates. We came out with five, um, <laughs> and um, I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure a lot of them learned who Amy Klobuchar was that day, and and started paying attention. I think in some cases. So that I think Super Tuesday. I think that's right. I think as long as it looks like there might be a contested convention, smart candidates won't drop out. I bet some of the ones who did drop out regret it. That was going to be my follow up. And and that was also my feeling. Again, I live in. In Wisconsin, um, in 2016, Scott Walker, like a year out from that convention, looked like a very obvious presidential nominee. Um, with his, you know, he was sort of has appealed to different elements of the Republican Party. He's primarily economically conservative, but he's got some decent social conservative credentials. Um, in part, I think also he wasn't really born for the debate stage, um, and that hurt him. But also. You know, he just, he dropped out and said, I'm trying to, to be part of a coordination effort to stop Trump. And then it, you know, it turned out no one else filled that role. So I bet he regretted, I don't know for sure, but I bet he regretted dropping out. 
Um, and I think that'll be a lesson to some of these candidates that are right. still in. Right, right, and potentially why some of them, you know, haven't dropped out <coughs> already. Yep. Um, Shifting gears a little bit, so Minnesota, we're, we're obviously talking about parties and their role in the presidential mm -hmm. nominating contest, but in Minnesota, party caucuses and party conventions are still happening and they're still very important um, for other levels of office. So mm -hmm. the gubernatorial level statewide, the, a, a nomination from one of the two major parties has not meant that, that the other mm -hmm. candidates have dropped out and in fact the, the nominees have not necessarily um, gone on to win the primary and, and thus the, the general election. But could you say a little bit about your reaction to party conventions that endorse candidates in lower level races, particularly where the competition is really only on mm -hmm. one side? Sort of what, what are the pros and what are mm -hmm. the cons and what's the future? Um, I mean, I don't study that, that level of government that much. Um, I think that that's, but I do think that that's an area where actually, you know, the real process of representative democracy can be really vibrant. Um, in terms of whether or not the, the party conventions should endorse, I, there's pros and cons to that. Um, sometimes it's helpful to have some, some signaling, sometimes it's helpful to have the, the choice structured a little bit. Again, I think it's overwhelming to people to have 20 plausible candidates for, you know, for governor or something like that. Um, other people may think that's great and gives them lots of choice, but my sense is that there's a happy medium between structure and choice. Um, but that's you know where I've had very little experience with state level party politics, but again, I've sort of through my students have experienced it a little bit. And it does seem to me like this is a place where people can really start to have deep and meaningful conversations about the direction of the party, where they cultivate new leaders, um, and so that's a really, it's a really important part of, of party politics. Yeah. Interesting. Thinking about the, uh, you alluded <coughs> to this earlier, but the current Democratic candidates mm -hmm. still contending for the nomination. What, could you describe sort of their bases of support and mm -hmm. anything that surprised you about sort of their Democratic bases of support? Yeah, this is, a, this is another great question. Um, the main surprise, I guess the first surprise for me was that the candidates of color didn't have more support among, among anybody, but particularly among voters of color. Um, the second thing that, I don't know if I was surprised by it, but it's new, is the way in which Bernie Sanders has cultivated a Latino base of support that we saw certainly in Nevada, but also there's a very interesting New York Times interview that I highly recommend just for its, its interestingness, um, that <clears throat> where they talk to various party and union leaders, and I think it's an episode of The Daily somehow, they talk to party and specifically union leaders in Los Angeles, young Latinos, um, about their their experience with um, with Bernie Sanders and their feelings toward him. So that was that was an interesting thing that emerged. Um, and then I think there's an interesting age thing where older voters don't really seem to like Bernie Sanders, who is older, um, and younger voters don't seem to like Pete Buttigieg. So. Um, <laughs> That's, uh, so he, he's the millennial son that our parents really wanted. Um, but <laughs> that's the, the thing that, that jumps out at, at me. Those are some of the demographics. So is there a moderate lane or is this a media, media narrative that sounds plausible but there's not a lot of substance to it? It's, I think it's, I mean, there's obviously a difference among the candidates on a couple critical issues. Um, and that's, so that's meaningful, right? There's obviously a big, there's a big difference on how the party should approach healthcare, how the next president should approach healthcare. There's obviously a big difference that has now completely dropped out of the, <clears throat> the debate discussion on not just how immigration should be, how policy should be implemented, but on the philosophical underpinnings of the immigration system. Um, those are meaningful differences. I don't know, like the party, Going back to what I was saying before, the party's not very institutionalized, right? Like, those factions aren't really crystallized. I know it sounds sort of counterintuitive to say that it would be better if we had more obvious factions. That would help us be more unified as a, as a nation and also as, as affiliates of a party, either party, but I actually think it would help. I think Republicans have the same problem. They don't have enough clear factions. Um, it, it concerns it would help me. It would be more obvious on how to bring people together. Yeah, exactly. It would be more obvious what the midpoint might be between, again, this is a either party thing. I'm just sort of in the Democrat mindset because that's the contest we have. But like, 
That it, it, but it does concern me that there's such a strong elite narrative about the moderate and the left wing when I actually think that when, when you talk to people that that's not totally how people conceptualize their choices. And, and that's, that difference is, has a real impact, I think. So speaking of the media narrative, in 2016, CNN was widely criticized for the number of hours that they gave to unedited Trump rallies, mm -hmm. um, yeah. it, you know, continually play them. And so you can see sort of media efforts to have all the candidates in <clears throat> town hall meetings mm -hmm. and to do a little bit better. But nonetheless, the media narrative shapes most people's mm -hmm. experiences of this nominating contest. How do you think mm -hmm. the media are doing in 2020 at sort of explaining what is happening with mm -hmm. the Democratic nominating contest um, and explaining the role of parties specifically? So, I mean, the most recent round of of criticism of the media narrative, I think came out of, it was just before the Nevada caucuses and it was about the coverage of Elizabeth Warren who has been left out of many headlines about the remaining Democratic uh, presidential contenders. So that's, I mean, I think that's a, that's a challenge and the way that gender has been presented to go back to one of your earlier questions has been a challenge. Um, and it's very hard, I think, for people to move away from a framework in which the, in which the point of comparison for Warren, or to some degree for Klobuchar, isn't Hillary Clinton. And that's not, given what happened in 2016, that's not, perhaps unfairly, not seen as much of a compliment. Um, the, the other thing I think is, is the case in the research I've done, and I have done minimal research in 2020 because it's happening, but I did some over the summer where I tried to track um, how, how various mainstream print outlets were covering the debate inclusion leading into the first debate and compare it to 2015. And you know, one of the things there is that the, there's a very strong frame of DNC versus activists. And I think that leads people into thinking about the contest in a way that cannot be won. Because ultimately the DNC, as I said earlier, makes the rules and runs the convention. Right? That's just how, that's just definitionally what happens. Um, and there are a lot of people who are part of that process who also consider themselves activists who also consider them, themselves passionate about a particular issue. They, this is why they do this. Not everybody, but, but many people. And so I think that that's just not a fight that can be won, and the media really likes that, really likes that narrative. So that's my main critique, and I know it's a little bit different than what you may have heard before. Yeah, that's, that's really useful. Well, we have just a couple of minutes left. Um, is there a question that I should have asked uh, that you want to impart to our audience um, who, you know, we've learned so much mm -hmm. from you about the parties and their role in the nominating contest, but what, what have we mm -hmm. missed in our questions? This has actually been a pretty thorough um, batch of questions. It pushed my, my knowledge to the, to the boundaries. Usually it's the media one that I, um, that I bring up. I guess the... I guess the question, the one thing that I would have, I would emphasize is how new the idea is that parties and party organizations shouldn't play any role or that their representative role is so deeply suspect. And I don't think that that means, that doesn't invalidate it. You know, I think this is related to, as I said, deeper, deeper reservations people have about whether their voices are being heard. Um, but I do want to emphasize that traditionally in our system there has been some representative role for um, for the parties and that in, in both the Republican and Democratic Party, I hope that there's some space for that representative role to come to the fore and for it not to be a clash between elites and voters, but for the elites to work for the voters. So I guess that's my plug for Betty, better party politics. Well, thank you very much, Professor Julia Azari. This was a terrific conversation. Thank you. And thanks to the audience for all your great questions. Thank you.